You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced weekly for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Real Men Feel is brought to you by The Good Men Project. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having. Your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. And many times through the course of this program, I have shared my experiences with, with depression and suicide attempts and childhood molestation. And one of the primary motivators of this program is to have men come on and share their own journeys, their growth, their experiences, especially around topics that most men are not talking about. Today is a potent example of that. So before we get going, I do want to give, you know, trigger warning galore. We're going to talk about some dark stuff, some traumatic stuff, but it's to serve everyone's best interest, right? It, it's taking some of these things out of the darkness, things that are uncomfortable to talk about. Our guest today is willing to talk about them. So that's why we're here. So without further ado, my guest today is author, speaker, and artist who is also a survivor of childhood sex trafficking and loads of physical and emotional abuse. So please welcome Mr. Brian Cardoza. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Andy. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this since we set it up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most people aren't familiar how I work the show, but um, uh, a past guest referred me to you. Actually, Henry Johnston um, said you're a great guy, and we talked for a bit. And, yeah, I was like, in 30 seconds, I'm like, oh, yes, he's, he's coming on the show, no doubt. And I don't like to ask a lot of questions once I've made that decision. I like to, to not know, I like to learn as much as the listeners are here in, in real time as things happen. Um, but what I do know is that you have <laughs> quite a rich history of, <laughs> of, of abuse and trauma. Yeah, I, I like to call them experiences. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, you know, you, you had said earlier uh, that I'm willing to talk about them. The, the, the true fact for me, Andy, is that it's not that I'm willing, it's that I have to. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's one of the things I always tell people, uh, I, I don't like being called brave, but I, I really don't. And everybody always fights me on this, but like the reality is, is that for me, part of my recovery is to take back what happened to me and make it mine and make it my story. And so for me talking about what happened to me as a child is, is less bravery because I don't have a choice. If, um, I, I need to continue to recover i need to continue to thrive i need to continue to grow and in ordinary for me to do that well then yeah i need to talk about it i need to be open about it and i need to realize 
just like every other survivor, we should associate no shame with what happened to us. You know what I mean? Like we literally had no part in what happened. It was just what's what happened to us, not because of us. Mm. And um, it's, it's one of those things where I've, I've often said, and I think I said this to you. And when we, we talked for that 30 seconds was, you know, I, I never wanted to become famous or popular because I knew what it was like to have an unwanted dick in my mouth. Um, but the truth of the matter is I do know, and I'm not the only one that does that. And in order for people to heal, they need to know, A, they're not alone. B, that there's a safe space for them to have these conversations, that they're not going to be judged, that they're going to be free of any kind of insular uh, toxicity that's going to come back at them. And all it does is help people when I speak my story. And that's crazy because I kept it hidden for so long and, and numbed it with the booze and the alcohol and the drugs and, you know, all these things and the sexual deviant behavior that to now realize that by admitting what happened to me, I'm more free than I was when I thought I was drunk. Mm. That's powerful. And uh, it's one of those times, and I I love it because I think this is true more often than people realize it, that kind of being selfish, you taking care of yourself, putting your your health, your life first, is actually helping everybody around you that meets you and hears your story. Yeah, well, it's the the proverb, if you can't fill cups with an empty pitcher. Um, and, and And as much as a philosophical and scientist as I am. Like, I don't believe in a lot of stuff that other people believe in. Um, I, you know, I hold it to nothing against anybody that, that does, you know what I mean? Like whatever gets you through, I don't care. I don't care if it's a paperclip, let's do this, you know? Um, but w- what's weird is that, you know, there are proverbs and there are things that actually come true and you have to sit there and just be like, okay. Um, and that being, you can't fill cups from an empty pitcher, you know? Um, and so when you have decided that, the picture can no longer be empty and your story can runneth over. Well, then you, you realize you have plenty, uh, your, your picture is larger than you thought it was and you can fill as many cups as you possibly can, but you just still need to take that chance to do some self recovery, to do some work. That's why I paint. That's why, like, I don't know if you guys can see it, but I can just tilt it up a little bit. I don't know. So right th- there, is the first rejection letter for my book. Um, and as, as crazy as that is, that's, that fills my picture back up is knowing that I was rejected and I still persevered. And that's the cover of my book. You know, like I was like, no, screw you. I'm going to do this, you know? Um, and that fills my picture also. Cool. So you, you, before we get into your experiences, you, you did mention that, you know, it, it, you, you did have shame. You tried to hide it. You tried to numb yourself out. So, so what, what, what first got you to decide to share what, what you had gone through? Uh, well, you know, it's really kind of weird. Cause like, I, I like yourself probably as, as you know, someone who has spoke about what happened to you and your, you, um, there was always like little tidbits you would tell people. Right. And you would just, you, you would, it was almost like you were gauging reactions to see how human you could be with them versus how robotic you could be um and that's the best way for me to analyze it because you would go through and you would just test little 
you know, like little, little, like, okay, I told you this. Now, how did you react? You know? And one day I was, I was in my own home and I was getting my house uh, remodeled. And I had a friend that was a professional interior decorator. And she came over and we started talking. And she was one of those really introspective ones. It was just like, I need to know everything about you before I decide the color of that wall, you know? And, um, so as insane as I thought that was, I was like, well, this is the first time someone is really asking me about me. Uh, so I'll test him. So I, I told her some of the, like, I always hinted at the sexual abuse. I didn't, but I always told her about the more masculine, like, oh no, I was beaten with coat hangers and broomsticks and you know what I mean? And I like all this, but I always kind of hinted at what happened sexually to me. And so one day she brings me the book, A Child Called It. And I don't know if you, have you read this book? I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Um, it's a brutally hard read to, to go through, not because it's poorly written, but because of the stuff that, that Andy went through. And um, she, gave, she brought me the book and I read the book. And then she was just like, look, if he can do it, so can you. You need to write your book. You need to tell people what happened to you. And when i read the child called it i had this realization was that there was a part of me that i, I don't want to say healed but definitely had like a subtle a salve put over the top of it because now i knew that i'm not the only one that had this mother who was a facade in one area and then a brutal a brutal a brutal um terrorist at home you know what i mean like and i was just like oh my god like i'm not alone like even on this part I recognize that we had joint behaviors and I feel better, you know? And so that was the realization was that I really had to start talking more about what happened to me. And so I started doing some uh, keynote speeches and, and talking at um, uh, crisis centers. And that became the antithesis of my, my, my lifelong dream is to make enough money with the book to where I can go to rate crisis centers across the nation and speak to just survivors. You know what I mean? Like not sell convention halls. I'm not greedy. I don't want a Maserati or a Tesla. Um, I, but I do want, I do want to help uh, other survivors. And um, so that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I wrote the book was hoping that I would sell enough books to where it would happen. Cool. Cool. And, uh, you know, a, a Tesla would help you travel the nation much easier and cheaper than any other means, by the way. But <laughs> uh -huh. I finally knew somebody who had one. <laughs> I will be glad. To, you know, it's one of the things that I, you know, back when I started writing books and speaking, it was, you know, a nationwide tour was was my dream, too. So maybe by speaking our dreams, something shall happen here. Who knows? One can hope, you know. Yeah. Cool. So. How how old were you when when the abuse started? Because now it sounds like it, it was it was your home. It wasn't what you left the house. It was it was where you were growing up. It began. Yeah. So um, <laughs> on there, it was uh, my the day my father left my mom uh, was the day the abuse really started. Um, you know, like in in most nineteen eighties families, there was always that trial separation. You know, where like the 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 mother would stay in one room, father would stay in the other. You know, and um, I'll never forget it because I got home from, from preschool. I ran into my dad's room because it was snowing. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. 
and uh and i was gonna like my dad was very always very um negligent on me he really didn't i, I don't want to say he hated me i don't want to say because that would have been an emotion and he just never showed me any of that so I, I just don't think that i think he viewed me as one of those people that kept him tied to a woman that he didn't want to be with anymore and so uh we were never close but i was always that you know innocent naive six-year-old like ah you know dad and um so I went inside to grab him because it was snowing and we were like, well, you know, we're going to shovel the driveway and have a snowball fight. And um, I, I wrote this in my book and I, I opened the door to his room and it was clean. And it was so clean that there wasn't even the memory of a cigarette, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like it was just spotless. And I hit the floor crying because I knew what it meant. And my mom was right behind me, and she said to me these words, he left because you couldn't make him love this family. And that's when the mental abuse started, and that's when the physical abuse started. Well, um, I have an older brother uh, who's four years older than me, and my mother, by her actions and deeds, convinced my brother that I was the reason his father left, that I was the failure of the family and it was my fault for any of the ills that happened. And later on that year in the summer, my brother sold me to his best friend um, for revenge. Um, and his best friend, uh, who was five years older than me, um, as the way he put it, uh, taught me what sex was, uh, face down on a red bean bag, on the on a balcony floor of a second floor in a house and that's when the molestation started until i was nine and the, the well and the physical and mental abuse continued till i was 12. um the mental abuse really got ramped up after i was 12 because <laughs> um between 11 and 12 Devin. I grew one foot, <laughs> like, like, and I'll never forget because my mom hit me with a broomstick and it broke, <laughs> and I and I just was like, "What?" And she, you know, like, she had that look of like, "Oh, this isn't working anymore," you know. And um, and so that's when the mental abuse got ramped up to the, you know, the 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 constant threatening threatening of being uh, homeless. Like she threw me out. Uh, when I was 12 for two weeks, um, she threw me out when I was 13 for three weeks. And then at 15, uh, she threw me out permanently on December 14th, 1989. And I had to, I, I slept in an abandoned car in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, learned a very valuable and important lesson uh, that night. But when I almost, like not figuratively, but literally almost froze to death. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> and so and so since it was it was beginning with your family, it, it, was there anyone you could dare share this with? Did you dare mention it to anyone? Ask for help? Anything like that? No, um, my family. Uh, my when my father left, um, and he left the state by the time I was eleven, and moved cross country. Um, he had pretty much made it clear that I wasn't his son. My brother was his son. Um, the other family members, I, I was, I, I was so isolated. 
I didn't, I didn't even really have friends. Um, like I had two friends from the time I was 12 to the time I was 15. And, and as weird as this is going to sound, Andy, um, because of those people, that's how I found out I was being abused. Um, you know, I, I say it often, I, like my abuse started so early that when people are like, oh, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you survived that. Well, the reality for me, it was just Tuesday. You know, it was it was what I did, you know, every Wednesday and Thursday. It was um, get home, clean, get everybody up for work, get everybody out for school. If I have time, I get to eat. If I have time, I get to shower. Um, then I have to go to school. Uh, then get home, have to make sure everybody's got their their stuff done. Then cook, clean the house. Then cook dinner. And this was and this was literally from the time I was seven. You know. And if I didn't get everything exactly correct, I was beaten. And if I didn't get everything exactly the way um, I was supposed to, I was beaten. I, I'll never, one of the worst beatings I ever got, Andy, was from my mom um, because she had hinted that she'd wanted fried chicken this week. And I never picked up on the hint. And I made spaghetti and got beaten like ruthlessly because it wasn't fried chicken. Um, you know, and, and so that was my life until I was 15, but at 12, when I started making friends and hanging out with friends and seeing their interaction with their parents around dinner tables and that I was like, something's not right. You know, like yeah. why, how come, you know, they get to go do that when I'm told to be in my room, you know what I mean? Like what, what what's the difference? And that's when I started to realize that the best thing for me would be to either freeze to death in that car, go back and beg to be let back in or just keep fight. And that was a choice that a 15 year old shouldn't have to make, but it's where you it were. Yeah. That, I mean, that's horrible that you're, yeah, your life, your life is so distorted, but it's, it's all you knew. So you thought, Oh, this is everybody family. This is, this is a normal, happy family in America. That what I could deal with. Yeah. I mean, there was there was no way of me knowing that other ten year olds weren't being subjugated to this themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was so isolated. Um, but lo and behold, you know, um, well, lo and behold, I have far more brothers and sisters than I realized. But lo and behold, that wasn't the norm, yeah. and um, and that's that's kind of the sad part is that I, I have so many brothers and sisters of abuse. Uh, that have gone through similar stories that haven't been able to speak out about it. Um, and that's why I do what I do so that they know that they're not alone. Did, did you ever heal the relationship with, with your brother, with your father, with your mother? No. Um, as my therapist once said to me, uh, <laughs> Andy, uh, this was my first therapist in Boston who's, I credit a lot of my healing to it. Uh, he, he looked at me and goes, you know what you do with cancer sometimes, Brian? And I was just like, what's that? And he goes, yeah, cut it out. And I was just like, oh, well, I get the analogy. <laughs> like, like, yeah. I, I may have been hit in the head a lot, but not that many times, you know? And so it was the understanding that in order for me to thrive and grow and, and recover, I needed to get rid of those toxic people out of my life, yeah. even if they were family. And, um, the minute I decided to do that is when my recovery really started to take mm -hmm. off. Um, yeah, now granted, you know, I, 
I still suffer from the same thing most people do. Uh, you know, I, I want to be part of the family. I, I desperately would love to have the, the appreciation and affirmation from my mom and my brother. But um, at the end of the day, if it was causing more tumors, then why do you want it? Right. Right. It's it, from, from my perspective, you, you, you've experienced and, and learned that it's more important your affirmation of yourself than yeah. whatever they have to say. Yeah. Um, you know, cause at the end of the day, I go to bed with myself, you know, at the end of the day, well, in my dog Calypso, but you know, <laughs> and I'm um, sure he but, loves you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, that's what really, really matters. And at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't happen on a regular, but every once in a while I get like a, um, a private message from somebody and they're like, um, I bought your book. Um, thank you. Uh, and, I'll be in tears, you know, <laughs> like, 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 you know, and like I had one guy uh, in Canada who bought my book, sent me a message and he was just like, because of your book, I'm writing mine. And I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome. Send me a copy. You know I mean? I'll buy it when it's out. And uh, the very first copy he got, he kept one for himself. And then the second copy was signed and delivered to me the like a week after he got it he was just like this is because of you and i'm just like all right well i can die now i'm good <laughs> you know what I mean? like like you know and that's the reason to do this that's the reason to be out here is to just let people are not alone and let, that let them know that it doesn't always the light at the end of the tunnel doesn't always have to be a train it really could be the end of the tunnel right cool so so you're 15 you're on your own. You're in Anchorage, Alaska. H how do you survive? Well, you know, luckily I was a big child. Um, I found a some a slumlord that would rent me a uh, an apartment under the assumption that I was 18 because I was already large. Um, then I made the mistake uh, about a year after I got my first place. I let my brother move in. Um, actually, I don't know if I ever let him or he just moved in. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I didn't at that point in time, I was still so steeped in the abuse and the, um, obligatory, uh, accusant to what they needed that when he was just like, I'm moving in, I was like, all right, you know? And so like three months later, um, crazy enough. Three months later, the I was in a like you know you you know what a strip mall is you know like this long confines and we got the fifth apartment and there was a sixth apartment all in this long tunnel this long building and um, the apartment next to us caught fire and you know they had you know all this stuff and well the landlord repaired it so my brother and I we move into the next one because it actually it's nicer and it's bigger and you know what I mean and like two months later, my brother throws me out of my own apartment and I'm homeless and I'm living on the streets and I had to live on the streets for a while. And, you know, there'd be families that would take me in, you know what I mean? Like I'd stay there for a couple of weeks and then get back out on the road and, uh, you know, sleeping in cold spots and just trying to find places to crash for the night was a, a daily, uh, challenge. Um, but you know, in my head, I never wanted to give up. And so by the time I was 18, borderline 19, 
uh, I realized that if I'm going to, if I want something different, I have to do something different, if that makes any sense. And um, so I joined Job Corps. I was like, you know, at least while I'm in Job Corps, I know I have three square meals a day. I have a roof over my head and um, I'll learn something. And that was, that decision was the last time I was homeless. And, um, and not to mention, I mean, there have been times where it was kind of iffy, <laughs> but, um, but that was definitely the last time I was, I was homeless. So we talked about you being hesitant. Like, why do you think men are so unwilling to talk about these sort of experiences happening to them? And is, uh, is it just people or is it different for men and women? I, you know, I, I thought about this question. Um, not that you would, okay, just let everybody know. This is like a, this is not a, this is like a magic trick. I had no idea these were going to come before. <laughs> like, like Andy and I never met and discussed this. Um, but no, um, I thought about this question because from your interviews prior, I kind of figured that these were the, where, the, where some of the questions were going to ask. Um, I think the reason why is because in male man-to-man talk on a regular basis, Andy, if somebody brings up the concept of rape to a, you know, a man being raped, in a casual speaking conversation, what do you think somebody in the group is going to say? They're going to say, oh, I would kill a guy. Um, there's no way he'd have to kill me. You know what I mean? Like those are the, those are the conversations um, because, you know, we have this, like, there's just no way, you know, I'm, I'm so much more of a, I'm so much more of a man. And when you hear those things as a survivor, you start ticking off the people that you can open up to and you start ticking off the people like, well, nope, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I know who you're going to blame for this. Nope. You know what I mean? And so it gets to the point to where you don't disclose because you're afraid you're going to be viewed as not man enough. Mm. Um, and the other thing I found for me personally, and I think the not man enough thing encompasses a lot of people, but what was my main driving factor was I over-masculated. So when I was in my early twenties to mid thirties. Um, if my friends drank 12 beers, I had 20. If my friends, you know, smoked two joints, I had an eight. Um, if, if my friends had a one night stand in the month, I had tried to have three, you know what I mean? Like I, I tried to be so much more masculine and so much more man than they, that it ended up becoming the trap because I was trying to prove my masculinity and trying to cover up what happened to me as a child so much so that even to admit that I was raped and molested would have been so contrary to that persona that I was going to turn everything that I was then into the lie. And that's the hard part is that because so many men over emasculate when they, when these things happen that you realize to open up and say that this happened to you would mean that everything that you have been doing is the lie. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And you know, who likes to admit when they're lying, who likes to admit when they're wrong? You know what I mean? Like, so I think that's part of the problem because we grew up in a society that says real men are Conan the barbarian and John Wayne and 
Um, you know, they don't have emotions, they don't have feelings, and they don't have insecurities. They're just men, you know, and if, if they feel insecure, they watch hockey, you know what I mean? And, um, and, and that is the most asinine thing in the world. I, I, I tell people all the time, like, I am, I am stupid strong. I, I mean, I am, like, I am 44. I still bench 605. You know what I mean? Like, I, I am, I'm, I've had five knee surgeries. And just today, I, I did a set of 30 for, for, on legs for four, uh, 400 plus pounds. You know what I mean? I am stupid strong. And never in my entire life has my strength ever been tested more than when my therapist looked at me and said, what did he do to you? Mm. Um, and the show of vulnerability, the show of being willing to heal from that was more strength than I ever realized I had, you know? Um, and I think we need to reframe what man cards are and we need to reframe what masculinity is and we need to rethink what image are we portraying to people around us and until we have those conversations in these places like we're having right now between you and I Andy more men are not going to come forward and and until we do then they will because then they'll realize this is a safe spot this is a place you can open up and be vulnerable with yeah, and that beautifully said, and that that's exactly why this is called Real Men Feel. I was like, what if there was a time and a place where your manliness wasn't judged just by how much do you bench? It was like, yeah. how much can you feel? How much yeah. you yeah. How, how many emotions have you felt today? You know, and yeah. <laughs> you know, in you know, the entire mental health thing, like I've been diagnosed, I'm diagnosed PTSD, um, social anxiety, borderline agoraphobia, body dysmorphic disorder, and. I, you know, I, I, I am not my diagnosis. I just live with them. Um, I am also not the face of rape. I've just been raped, you know, and I know what it's like and I know that pain. And um, I wish more men would open up about it because if they opened up about it, the reality is we would have more centers. We would have more trauma informed brick and mortar places for men to go um, to discuss these things because now, um, Andy, in your in your vast knowledge, would you ever open up a restaurant that served lentils and bark? <laughs> no, nobody's asking for it, right? Um, and the, that's the reason why there aren't centers for men because no men aren't asking for it. I'm not going to waste resources to open a restaurant that serves lentils and bark because nobody's asking for it now. If all of a sudden, you know, 32 million people are like, I like lentils and bark. I'm opening up a chain of lentils and bark restaurants. And we as men need to be brave enough to have these conversations um, and, and, and realize that real bravery is in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So I, I don't even know if you can answer this or, or contemplate this, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, is it more the experiences, what happened to you that challenged your sense of, of being a man and your masculinity? Or was it what other men mirrored back to you as what being a man meant? I, I think it's both. Um, I really do. I think um, I've said this in other interviews that I think the reason why I have such a different opinion of what masculinity is, is because growing up in the 80s, 
um, sex abuse didn't happen to men. That was a woman's thing. That that happened to women. You know what I mean? And if and if it did happen to you, uh, excuse the language, but I'm just being period correct. Um, you know, if it did happen to you, you were a fag. You know what I mean? Like you 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 just weren't man enough. And when you go through life thinking that you have suffered something that only women do you start to become a little bit sensitive to those issues and you start to look at yourself and just be like okay what else has gone on and when you start to look at life through an outside perspective that's like that's like the one good thing about abuse for me was i was able to disassociate from the pain and just keep moving and so when i get into periods where i'm in deep pain mentally or emotionally um, I can disassociate and then look at this from an outside perspective and be like, okay, so what triggered you? Okay, so this is what happened. Um, and I think those things really helped me change and reframe my mind on masculinity. And then also be in that time frame when I was the guy that was drinking 20 beers and how many friends I had because I was that guy, you know what I mean? Like I was the guy that if you made fun of my buddy, they would just be like, hey, Brian, I'd be like, what? you know what I mean? Like, and you know, that's a projection of what they thought masculinity was also. They thought I was that, you know what I mean? I was the man and inside I was dying, you know? And inside I was slowly committing suicide, one bottle and one joint and one cigarette at a time. Is, is stigma more than embarrassment? Like, what, what, yeah. what is stigma? You know, to me, stigma is one of those things where it's an exterior labeling um, from somebody else, and it's a fear of an exterior labeling. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it's like, to me, when those people, I, I really, uh, and I hope you understand where this is coming from, I can't stand it when people are like, I don't give a crap what other people think about me. Yes, you do. They don't you really do stop joking stop kidding yourself realize that there's an importance in it and that you you can then look at yourself and be like well okay you know what i do care and i and i, and I do care that people look at me as um a survivor and i do care that they look at me as a person that they can come to and they can speak to i do care about that now at what level do i give them in my own head on, on how much i care is my own is my own you know uh, position but i still have to acknowledge i do care and when a stigma is labeled it's because somebody they don't want to admit that they care and they don't want to admit that this has happened and that, that they feel bad that you have labeled them as something um it's much easier just to be like oh that's what you th why do you think that okay what behavior can I do to correct so that you don't think that? If it's a negative stigma, you know what I mean? Um, but I think people's fears of stigma comes from the fact that real men don't care. Well, yes, they do. You know, when, um, it, it's, it's bizarre how many flashbacks I'm having uh, during this conversation and, and stuff. And like, uh -huh. wow, uh, a couple of times I've, I've felt like, wow, I'm on the verge of tears right now. And, things I hadn't thought of in a long freaking time. Um, so I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so my molestation happened when I was like five or six years old. And part of my experience was a neighbor had me um, do things with his young daughters. And, and even then at age six, there was some, I had heard enough from society, movies, whatever, to know like, oh, this, this, this is 
cool. This is supposed to be what I'm after. So yeah. it was really freaking bizarre to what to label that, or even as I discovered it, unpacked it years later, um, you know, good, bad, no, that like, and again, the hype, I'm like, oh, good for you. Or if, if, if a female rapes a young boy, oh, good for that kid, a lucky kid, good for him, and all that yeah. kind of crap. Got lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was that part of your experience, kind of both coming, you know, both, both ways, coming from both sexes and some things, oh, that should, you luck, lucky you, Brian, was that ever something that was said to you? Um, no. Okay. I think it's because mine was a same-sex rape. So, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, like, it was it was a toxic time. Um, growing up in the 80s, you know, you were, I was told emphatically, like, this is the, okay, so this is the reason why I'm um, single and no, and never been married and never had children. And now to find out later in the years of advocacy how wrong the stereotype was, um, it's, it's, if there's anything that beats me up mentally anymore, it's this. And it's the fact that growing up in the eighties as a male sex abuse survivor, I was told, um, about the vampire myth. Are you familiar with the vampire myth? No. So the vampire myth is that once you were bitten, you're a biter. And that meant that because I was abused and molested, that I was going to be an abuser and a molester. And I was so determined to never have that happen. I removed myself from society in a way where I didn't allow relationships to happen. Like the minute a girl would get close, I'd be like, you know, I'm crazy, right? See you later. You know what I mean? And like, um, so I, I ran like hell from those, those times. Um, because men were so um, unheard of that I was a rarity. I was an oddity. Um, and then, you know, we fast forward to later on and I get a lot of people being like, you're brave. Uh, but at the same time in women's from women's groups, like on the me too movement, uh, myself and a bunch of guys got lit up. I mean, just completely lit up by women just being like, how dare you try to steal our movement? Um, I've heard comments, uh, well, men do all the raping. So, you know. <laughs> like I've heard um, this was from somebody in the industry, which, and I call it an industry because really I feel like it is. Um, we were discussing um, uh, sex trafficking and we were talking about the adult industry and uh, they were, you know, the entire conversation it was a really good conversation. They kept talking about, you know, little Joni who had left Kansas and wanted to become a star and went to California and got sold into sex trafficking and now she does porn and all this kind of stuff, right? And I was the only male advocate in the room and I was just like, well, what about little Johnny that left Kansas and had the same dream and got wrapped up into gay porn too? And the person that said this, Andy, worked at a crisis center, still works at a crisis center looked me dead in the face and she was just like, yeah, but you know, the men enjoy it, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and that's that, you know, there is such pushback for being a male survivor um, that, you know, it, it's really hard. I, I just recently on, uh, I want to say the 2nd of November of October, I was at a group um, for a stand up speak out Monica day in, in Raleigh, beautiful, beautiful organization incredible woman uh well let me rephrase that incredible freaking human being you know what i mean and um 
she had me come out because we were talking one day and she had this realization was that men, we go through the exact same things women do. We go through the same trauma, we go through the same bartering system. We have the same insecurities after a molestation or a rape. And so she invited me out to her women's group where they had a conference and I was one of two males in the conference that were actually parts of the conference. And it was crazy because we're on this panel and we're all survivors, uh, myself and another male survivor, James Bright. And we're getting asked these questions and the rest of the panel are all women and I'll, I'll answer a question and every girl on the entire panel is just like, all agreeing, all the heads are shaking, like, yep, me too, me too. And so it was the realization for, for her and a realization I've had for years that men should not be outside of the healing spectrum. Men should not be removed from the recovery system for men or for women, because the more they realize that we are truly allies, the more comfortable they will become thusly going back into society after, after you know, therapy and all these kinds of things, because they will realize that, not, that there are male allies, that we're not all just rapists, you right. know? Yeah, it's unfortunate that people, but but again, it's it's freaking trauma. It messes you up. So even as you think you're healing and trying to heal, you can still have very distorted views, and it's it's yeah. easier to blame everybody than just, especially if it's if it's someone close to you, if it was someone you trusted, to blame the individual. It's easier to say they're all bad, um, yeah. no matter what. You know, I, I've had people come to me and after they've heard my story and just be like, "Oh, you must hate gay people," and I was just like. I, I don't, I'm too lazy to have that much energy to hate a whole group of people because of what one person did. You know what I mean? Like, like you put me in the room with my rapists, it's going to be a different conversation. But I, I, because, you know, because he had a proclivity to be with other men doesn't go on to other people that have that same proclivity. Right, <laughs> you know right. I mean? it's, it wasn't, it wasn't that, that aspect of him was not the root yeah, of your problems. I don't, I don't, I don't like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and, um, you know, and so it's, it's a lot of toxicity on both sides. I've, I've never heard, I, I have heard some affirmations more recently, but you would be amazed at the amount of pushback a male survivor gets. Um, it, especially in a genre where you would think like, no solidarity is where we need to be, you yeah. know? Um, but it just is, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, but it, it's, it's still happening. So I, I, I hadn't heard the vampire myth by that name, but I certainly yeah. grew up with an expected. Yeah. And that was, that was a conscious fear I had that, oh, now I'm going to be rapist. Now I'm a molester because that's how this works. And yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. cause I, I was 20 years old and in a mental hospital after, uh, another suicide attempt. And I was in like a class setting and they were talking about sexual abuse and I just started having flashbacks just out of the pictures and who it was and when it was my age and the image I kept, oh God, freaking out. Yeah. The image I kept having was knowing, yep, I know the, your line. I can't even say it. Yeah. Just breathe, my friend. Just breathe. Yeah. Ugh. All right, man. This is the so, place to have a, 
yeah no i i'm i did not expect this but i'm glad it's happening but uh just show that this is this is not some this is not some show for entertainment <laughs> yeah this is this is this shit entertaining <laughs> <laughs> but um so i had that realization and started and but i i didn't believe it because at the same time when was this this is late 80s early 90s and it was big on tv of 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 false memories and you can't trust the kids oh, they're remembering things and all that shit so i'm like did this happen or not and, and so i'm tormenting myself with i'm 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 horrible no i'm a victim i'm a mess no i'm making it up i still don't know what's wrong with me all these things happening at the same time and and but yeah i've never had kids and i decided i wouldn't have kids from a younger age but now this really enforced it and it made me even yeah. doubt um because because kids always liked me kids like gravitate to me you know dogs and puppies and children always seem to know who the good people are <laughs> yep, yep, um yep. and it made me like doubt that and fear that and not trust myself and all that kind of just uh, yep. on top of the the sexual abuse and from the, there's this whole trauma from discovery and what people talk about it and again be, survivors not sticking together or you know, people attacking victims and, and challenging memories. And, you know, no one, like I said, you, you don't want to be famous for this kind of shit. You don't grow up and go, oh, here's my plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like at no point in time when I was six years old being forced to do things I never thought I would do, was I like, oh, this is going to work out in my 40s. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, A little different know, trade it, school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, but, you know, there, there's some weird things about being an abuse survivor is that you're a survivor you know what i mean um and, and there are things that that have happened in my life where i'm like well if this hadn't happened would i have responded in this situation you know and for instance um like i'm just gonna sound like the guy that's like the hits keep coming you know um so on uh, october 15th in 2017 i was at the local community college trying to sign up for um classes to become an art therapist and i'm in the i'm in there and i'm just like the typical old guy trying to set up an email like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I type this way you know what i mean and this lady comes running in and she's just like gunman on campus gunman on campus and so nobody responds so i'm just like oh well this must be just a drill you know and then she comes back around and it's a singular entrance office uh concrete with, with 26 windows like this is so like this is where the abuse came in because i was hyper vigilant and i was hyper aware of what was going on i knew where my exits were i knew where what what kind of a room i was in so i knew the you know diagram everything just instantly in my head and um she comes running back around the uh partitions for the offices and she's like no this is not a drill. There is a gunman on campus. So everybody starts to freak out. And, and I know it's because of my abuse that I was able to disassociate and develop a plan. And it was just like, okay, all right, you guys have an office for your lunchroom. Everybody get in the lunchroom. I took the couches that were in there for the lounge for people to wait. And I shoved them up against the door. I'm like, this guy's coming in. He's going to have to fight for it. You know what I mean? So I shoved the, the couches up the door. I make sure that I'm the last person in the room. And there are 14 people in the room. Um, seven of them 
Seven of them are, you know, in their 60s to maybe 70s. One lady looks like she has um, either uh, propecia or cancer because she's got a wig on. Uh, there's uh, a couple adolescent uh, teens, 18 to 21. There's two other guys in the room, and then there's me. And I realize I'm the biggest guy in the room. I realize that if a shooter comes in this room, that I'm the most I'm the most viable for defending these people. So I automatically take the door. And when I take the door, I realize that if I'm in the middle of the door and if he shoots to clear the door, then I'm going to be shot and fall backwards um, vertically. So the best thing for me to do is to sit down by the doorknob to where if he shoots into the room, I can either open the door, grab the gun, take him out. Or if he shoots me, I fall horizontally and I become a 400 pound door wedge and nobody else is going to die. And in my head, the entire time, I'm thinking to myself, see, mom, I have worth. See, mom, I am not worthless. Even in my death, I'm going to save these people. And if it hadn't been for what I had gone through, I can't say I would have reacted that way. You know what I mean? Like, I, I do know I can say that I reacted that way and I had gone through all that stuff. But I do think that the stuff I had suffered had made me take to the realization that if I die, I die, but I'm not dying worthlessly. I'm not dying and leaving these people to stay in this room. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out with a bang, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't think, and I don't think that people that haven't gone through what I've gone through would have reacted the same way. Yeah. Cause I wanted to ask, like, how did you avoid just, just, being wallowing in victimhood for the rest of your life but it sounds like you know recognizing your resilience and that you really were a survivor right not just fall into that well, trap well let's not be you know i'm not gonna kid anybody i, I i'm not gonna say i haven't spent my fair time in the wallowing pool of misery you know what i mean like there have been you know there have been some times where i was just like oh i'm in the deep end you know what i mean um and you know and then there are times when i'm just like my toes aren't even wet um but, you know, the reality is, is that it's just Tuesday. And every day I get up is an opportunity. Um, you know, right now I live, <laughs> I jokingly, but, you know, honestly, it was just like, you know, I live my life art commission to art commission. Um, and, you know, and yes, I want the book to sell. And yes, I would love more speaking engagements. And yes, I would like to be able to one day open up a, a, a men's rate a men's crisis center. Um, those just aren't in the books right now, you know what I mean? And so every day I get up and I try to sell more books. Every day I get up, I try to sell more paintings. Every day I get up, I go to the gym um, and I try to get stronger. And I, and I see my therapist once a month and I do these so I can make sure that, um, not so that I'm viable, but so that the message is. Um, you know, I, I realize that if I look like, you know, Antonio Banderas in the eight nineties, I'd probably get further, but um, <laughs> that's just not in my cards. I, I look like a, a painting brush hanging upside down and, uh, <laughs> and I race. You know what I mean? So it's just the way it is. <laughs> and so art is definitely serving you now. Have, have you, had you always been artistic and expressive or is this something you discovered as part of healing? Well, when my, the one, the one, um, thing I'll heap upon my mother was that she was an astounding artist. Um, 
she was one of those people that you hand her a picture and you would and she'd paint a copy of it and you'd be hard pressed to figure out which one was the picture you know what i mean you'd be like no that one's smaller so that's the picture um and i remember growing up that i would start to draw because i felt like that was a way to ingratiate myself um and little did i know that it was just going to cause far more pain because it was always like you know because i would draw demons as a kid and she would just be like why do you always draw demons and i was just like and i always came up with this like really crafty excuse like you know like well because you know who knows what a demon looks like you know what I mean? and and she was and it wasn't i didn't want to tell her it's because that's all i see you know what i mean like and so for a few years as a kid i was i, I was artistic and i would i would play around with stuff but then after I got thrown out, I really stopped. And um, in 97, I was facing 18 years uh, jail time for uh, the driver of a car having uh, four ounces of crystal meth and a loaded 357 on them. And I got out. Of, I got out. I, was, I spent a bunch of time in solitary confinement. And that was, that was a pivotal moment in my life. I Honestly, I say... There are three things in my life that have changed me for the better. And that was almost freezing to death, jail, and therapy. And um, I spent seven days in solitary confinement, had a lot of time to think. And I got out of solitary. I took a Greyhound bus from Spokane, Washington, to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, um, found my dad. And little did I know my brother was actually living with my dad. Um and started to have conversations that I needed to have. And lo and behold, one day I was working a job at security and I just picked up a pencil and some paper and I just started drawing again. And I found a soothing effect on that. And it just landslided to the point now where, you know, I, I sell my stuff internationally. I've sold stuff to New Zealand. Um, I've designed book covers for other survivors. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, Art has been a great thing for me, um, but at the same time, it has been completely 100% a commutative uh, desire to try to heal others through art and to help them create their art so that they can heal. Mm. Mm. So it may be a, an easier path to, to not forcing lentils and bark on people is uh, you know opening up men's artist centers as opposed to well, counseling yeah. centers or something. Well, that's one of the things I do with uh, Survivor Nights, my, my traveling art show, is we have a traveling art show where I tell people, I don't care what you survived, I just care that you survived. Mm. Um, and so it's, you know, they, I have cancer survivors and domestic violence survivors and heart attack survivors and all these different survivors they, 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 that express their healing through art. And we do traveling, we, we do art shows all across the nation. Well, we're trying to get them all across the nation. Um, right now, currently, our, our largest one is in um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Why can't I speak? <laughs> I don't smell toast, so I'm not having a stroke. Um, but um, but what would, it's beautiful because uh, Michael Broussard, one of my favorite people, he's the host of the show in Philly. And we do it at the University of Pennsylvania, the Rotunda, the Rotunda there. And I don't know if you remember this, Aunt, but Andy, but for us, it's amazing because we're both male survivors and that's the home of Jerry Sandusky. So we have, we do this show 
where it's a lot of spoken word because that's what Michael's really good at. And we have art and everything like that. But it's four hours of us just putting our middle fingers up to Jerry Sandusky and just being like, oh, no, we're taking this back. This is weed. This is men can come back here, too. You know what I mean? And um, and that's what we do with the art show is we give people we give men an anonymity because we don't put it up like here's our cancer survivors here's our sex abuse we just we put up the art and it allows them to communicate it in a, an anonymous way um and then they get to see the reaction of other survivors and other people and then they start to it's a beautiful moment Andy. it's why if you ever get to philly during one of these shows you, you bring kleenex because you'll be sitting there and you'll just watch somebody and you see somebody just completely in, envelop themselves in this painting because they're just like, that's me. You know what I mean? And when, when people start to feel those affirmations that they, they weren't alone, they just start to open up and it becomes like a hug fest and like this entire, like, Oh my God, I thought I was alone and you just painted exactly what it feels like. So I'm not. You know what I mean? And it's an amazing experience. So, so what's the best way for people to, to learn about this? Well, how can they find out where, where the, where the next show is or when? Um, on Facebook, we have a, I have a page called survivor nights. Um, it's K N I G H T like nights of old. Uh, and we post up all of our updates and our events coming up on that page. We haven't had an event in a little while. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard event for hosts. Hmm. Um, because it's nothing for the for the parameter of the show which is a four-hour show nothing is for sale now if you sell a piece when you're walking up to the door i don't care if you sell a piece at 401 i don't care but during the show it's not for sale and that's because we're there to communicate awareness we're not there to raise funds we're not there to um uh, you know try to make money we're just there to just raise the awareness in a free atmosphere and so the buildings that host us they you know they, they have to be able to be free because we can't afford to pay um and uh they have to have volunteers and the show is so successful this is the funniest thing i know we got to wrap it up because of time this is the funniest thing we did our show last march in philadelphia it was our second show the show is so successful andy that as we're tearing everything down and putting everything in cars and getting everything transported, the head person for the rotunda walks up to Michael Broussard, who is the host for the show there, and looks at her and she looks at him and goes, Okay, so we already have you scheduled for next March. Um, you just tell us when you want to do it and we're in. But that doesn't tell you the success that people are like, no, no, we're already going to, we've already, no, we, a year out, this is your spot. Um, if that doesn't tell you the success, then I don't, I, 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 I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, so. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's help fulfill some of your other dreams to talk about things you can sell and you do sell. Tell, tell um, me about the book. Uh, the book is called The Unexpected Victim. It's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, it comes in ebook and paper book and, and paperback. Uh, to find out more about me, you can go on BrianCardoza.com. Uh, my a lot of my art's there, or Survivor Nights. I post a lot of my art on Survivor Nights. Uh, I always try to make sure that there's new stuff going up, so we don't lose uh, traction on it. 
and then also, <laughs> I always say it jokingly, but I'm serious. Um, if you just Google my name and then put survivor, I have like seven pages, which honestly, Andy, if you'd asked me in my twenties, I thought that would be a criminal record, um, <laughs> but it's not, you know, and, uh, and you can even find me on Plenty of Fish, Brian Cardozo. So um, I, I don't, I don't play around. <laughs> cool. Well, I really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for sharing your heart so openly and and widely. Um, mm, I, I do everything I can to help fuel your dreams of, and getting more things traveling, getting more men talking. Um, yeah, and, that's what and, it's and about. And the same to you. And let, 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 let this be said, and, and I try to say this to to everybody, but more more importantly, the people that know what I'm know what the monsters look like. Andy, thank you. Your bravery you exhibit every time you turn on the mic and give somebody a voice is astounding. And don't let anybody ever tell you different. The fact that you're sitting here willing to face possible triggers from a guy who looks twice your size but roughly the same. Uh, you know, uh, fashion sense um, tells you how brave you are. And I can't, there's, there's no way to thank you enough for being able to do that. So thank you for giving us the opportunity. And I think that my quote for my art shows, my community art shows is um, communities make survivors, stronger survivors make stronger communities. And that's what you're helping us do. So thank you. Cool. And, uh, my reply wants to be, it's my pleasure, but it isn't always my pleasure. So I've got to find some other way to respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Glad to know you, but sometimes it feels really shitty to know you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So uh, again, thank you, Brian. Thank you for everyone for, for listening. Um, do check out Brian's work. Uh, his book, his artwork. Um, give this show a like, a comment, some feedback. Share it with someone that you think needs to be hearing this message and, and know that they aren't alone in whatever they're facing, whatever they're surviving. Um, we would appreciate it. And I know they would appreciate it as well. So uh, until next time, uh, look for us on realmenfield.org for more conversations people aren't having the Goodman project. Check out Brian. We'll give, uh, we'll give links to all the Facebook pages and websites that he's got going on. And uh, maybe we'll grab some, some art, some uh, artwork and, and edit it into this, this video too. If you're watching it on YouTube, um, if, yeah, if I've said if I've left this edited in, then I've added some artwork into it. So I hope you enjoyed what you saw. <laughs> um, so again, thanks, Brian. Thanks, everyone else. And as always, be good to yourself. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Visit goodmenproject.com for more of the conversations no one else is having.